Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show includes a conversation about replacing Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. Then Steve has stories in which we learn how Steve got paid a quarter for every letter he answered for former President Eisenhower. And finally, a conversation with the author of a new Brookings Press title, The Democracy Promotion Paradox. My guest today is Russell Wheeler, a visiting fellow in our Governance Studies program, president of the Governance Institute, and for nearly 30 years was with the Federal Judicial Center, the Federal Courts Research and Education Agency. Welcome to the show, Russ. It's good to be here. So we're talking about the replacement of Associate Justice Antonin Scalia, who passed away in February, leaving a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court. What does the Constitution require of the president and of the Senate when it comes to a Supreme Court vacancy? It's a little tricky. The Constitution says the president shall nominate and bind with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint. But the Constitution uses shall in in different ways. Now, some people take that to mean that there's a command that the president must nominate somebody and the Senate must either give advice and consent or not do so. I I don't know how far you can push that reasoning. Well, by analogy, what if there were a vacancy on a district court that was seriously overjudged, had many more judges than it needed? I can't imagine anybody would say the president had to fill that vacancy, even though there's obviously no no need for that judge. So I I, I don't find a constitutional command for the president to make a nomination. And uh, for the sake of listeners, uh, the number of seats on the court, Supreme Court, is set by congressional law, and it's changed over time. It's been as high, as low as six and as high as 10. Okay. What's your reaction to this notion, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, he's the Senate Majority Leader, uh, when he said that the people uh, should have a voice in filling this vacancy via the presidential election that we're going to have soon? It's not as far-fetched as it sounds. There's a, there's a recurring theory that you need to put a popular imprint on the federal judiciary. It can't be an isolated set of monks there with no popular control. But you do that not by impeaching judges or by imposing term limits or elections. You do it through the presidential election and process and senatorial process. So there's something to that. On the other hand, I don't know how you how you cabin that. Uh, the, the, the Republicans are saying, well, in a presidential election year, the president shouldn't make a nomination. Well, the campaign starts two or three years ahead of the election. Maybe should you push that back until the the second year of a president's term? Is that is that when it stops? I don't know how you stop it. And anyway, let's look at this for what it is. This is not so much the the, the call for a democratic input on the on the presidential uh, presidential nomination of a justice. It's to avoid having Obama nominate and perhaps force the Senate to confirm a justice because. The Republicans hope maybe they can do the nominating come 2017. That's what this is about. And I uh, I read somewhere that every nominee, every Supreme Court nominee since 1875 has received at least a hearing or a vote. Uh, well, there weren't any any references to the Judiciary Committee before 1860, so that means a little less than it might. In the modern era, that's true. It's a little irrelevant, though, because justices don't leave office during election years very often. And so we don't have too much precedent. But the precedents go back to a period in which there was much less polarization. I'll give you some examples, though. Think about this. In 1956, October, as the election was a couple of weeks off, Sherman Minton took senior status. He, his health just wouldn't let him go on. Eisenhower didn't nominate a replacement. Eisenhower recessed appointed Justice Brennan, which is, in a sense, the exception that proves the rule. Now, if you could imagine that happening today, if Scalia had died in October 
and Obama had tried to re- make a recess appointment, the Capitol would have blown up. I'll give you another example. 1916, Charles Evans Hughes announced in July, that was an election year, that he was leaving the Supreme Court in order to run for governor of New York. Wilson made a, uh, a nomination the same month, and the person was confirmed the same month. That just tells you how different, what a different world we live in today than we did back where these historical precedents are being cited. When we look back at the history uh, in the Supreme Court, the days between the nomination and the, and the confirmation or the withdrawal, the rejection, has been things like uh, 87 days, 73 days, 114 days uh, for Robert Bork until he got rejected, 100 days for two of right. Johnson's. Uh, I think the longest one in, in the kind of the post-Civil War era was something like, um, look at my notes, 125 days for Louis Brandeis. Right. Um, so we're, uh, I mean, at the time of Justice Scalia's death, we were something like 300 days away from the end of Obama's presidency. Can you just speak briefly to, uh, maybe not necessarily this particular issue with Justice Scalia, but the, the length of time it takes now for the Senate to confirm these vacancies? Well, it's all comparative. William Howard Taft was confirmed the same day he was nominated. And uh, Frank Murphy was nominated in 1940. That's an election year. And he was confirmed uh, two weeks later, January 1940. Today, actually, the justices are getting confirmed more quickly than our Court of Appeals judges and district court judges. It's been, as you say, in the range of 60 to 75 days. And that will vary a little bit based on recesses and other matters. Uh, When you look, though, at Obama's Court of Appeals nominees, they're taking upwards of 200 days to get confirmed, and the district judges aren't much behind. And that didn't start with Obama by any matter of means. It's been gradually getting longer and longer and longer to uh, put federal, would-be federal judges through the confirmation process. Let's switch to this uh, this thing I've heard about called the Thurman Rule. I assume that's after Strom Thurman. Can you tell listeners what is the Thurman Rule, and uh, is it good governance to have something called the Thurman Rule? Well, in the first place, it's not a rule. Yeah. It's not a rule like Senate Rule 22 or anything like that. It's best described as a statement of the obvious, that confirmations are going to slow down in presidential election years, partly because the party out of the White House wants to save vacancies that maybe their person can confirm, and partly it's election year, and so there's just not as much Senate time. And it, and you can't put a, a date on it. Some people have said, well, the Thurman Rule kicks in in March, some say in June. Actually, uh, under Reagan, under Clinton, under uh, Bush too. Uh, the Senate was confirming district judges into October and September. So it's not a rule. It's it's just a an obvious fact that the party not in the White House starts to invoke and says exist, and the party in the White House says doesn't exist. And when the, when the tables are turned, they turn on a dime as to whether they invoke the rule or not. So let's look at uh, what's going on uh, right now just in terms of court operations, mm-hmm. Supreme Court operations. There's There are eight justices. It's generally seen as there's four kind of liberal justices, three absolute conservative justices, with Justice Kennedy being the swing vote, but he's often conservative. So what happens uh, right now if cases are decided on a 4-4 tie? Basically, it's as if the case was never argued. The decision below in the Court of Appeals, if that's where the case came from, stands. As I say before, it's just everybody went through all that effort for no good reason. And... um, the court tries very hard to avoid 4-4 ties, uh, avoid recusals, for example, which re- might create a 4-4 tie, just because so many people do so much work and have it go for naught. It, it wouldn't surprise me if some of the blockbuster cases that are still before the court could um, could get uh, set for re-argument when there's a fifth justice. 
uh, and there are some pretty important cases yet to come. I, I went back and looked at it. In, 19, uh, in, in 2013, there were, by my count, about 10 5-4 cases, which would have been 4-4 in an eight-judge court. In uh, 2014, there were, there were uh, over 20, so we don't know. But you've got uh, already argued or set for argument uh, several, several important cases involving reapportionment including one involving whether or not the basis for reapportioning, uh, uh, for allocating representatives should be population or voters. That could shift the power quite dramatically because not everybody in the big cities votes as often as others. There's obviously the big case involving the Texas abortion law. There's Obama's executive order about uh, deferred prosecution of, uh, of uh, persons in the country uh, illegally. Uh, there's an important case involving Obamacare and whether or not religious-affiliated organizations have to abide by regulations concerning providing contraceptives to their employees. So, so those are all there. There's, the, the, as we, we in Washington, the Governor Bob McDonald case involving corruption of public officials. And I think most people, well, you, well, you never predict this and you're dangerous to try. Most people think those could well go four to four. So that's an awful lot of work that's going to go for nothing if, if indeed that happens. Uh, the one case won't be affected by that, though, and this is important. One of the prominent cases this term is the Texas University of Texas Affirmative Action case. That will be decided by a seven-judge court because Justice Kagan had recused herself. She was involved in a solicitor general. So that's one that won't, won't face, unless something dramatic happens, won't face a, a tie vote. So even if all of the lawyers on both sides have made their arguments to the court, the justices have heard the case— uh, the court could still decide, say, we will have this case re-argued at some future date. Either that or they might just uh, cancel the argument and, and say, we'll, we'll set it for re-argument once we have a full court. A few conservative uh, commentators have suggested that it, Justice Scalia's vote uh, was known on some of these uh, pending decisions uh, or they could impute it and that Chief Justice Robert could assign his vote uh, either way, post-mortem. Is that really a plausible I, strategy? I, I, I've heard that, and I can't imagine where it comes from. As I understand, I've always understood the rule that a case is not decided, quote-unquote decided, until it's announced, giving any justice up until the last minute the uh, the right to change his or her mind and uh, have and subject the, the case to more reconsideration. And I think the, 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 the most obvious point that, that proves that is the court has announced three decisions since Justice Scalia's death, including one in, on um, Monday, March uh, 7th. We can be pretty sure that Scalia's vote was known in that case and in two others that were announced on March 1st. Yet when they were reported, they reported eight to nothing, six to two and six to two. So if people are going to be imputing his vote, they wouldn't be reported that way. Let's take a quick break for the next installment of Steve Hess Stories. Here is Steve talking about the unexpected result of answering mail for former President Eisenhower. The Eisenhower administration was over January 20th, noon, uh, 1961, and um, I had to get a job. It was interesting because I was 25, but most of these people were pretty old, and, and many at that time, people stayed, or at least stayed on Eisenhower's staff for six and even eight years. Today, they see, most of them seem to be up and out in, in, in two years for a job that they can't refuse. Uh, so these were, were very nice people, uh, very nice to a young man uh, who knew which fork to use and was quiet and listened to their conversation at the staff tables, kept notes on him, and uh, 
they, they advised me, go out and, and make a lot of money and then come back into government. That's the way you do it. Very good advice, but I just couldn't do it, really. I mean, I, the government was so much more exciting than anything I could do writing speeches for the president of IBM or something. So uh, I took a job in the, in the Senate for a very short time uh, when a man named Bryce Harlow, uh, he was the congressional uh, liaison with the Congress uh, for the president and then became uh, the chief of the Procter Gamble office. And everybody connected, if you were a Republican, through Bryce Harlow, a remarkable man. At that time, a president who retired simply got in his old car and drove to Gettysburg. Uh, had in that case, the college at Gettysburg gave him space to write his memoirs. But he didn't have secret service. He didn't have secretaries. He didn't have office buildings. He didn't have all the things uh, that the Reagans and the Clintons and so forth uh, now have. Uh, and Harlow said to me, if, we're, if we, the Republican Party, uh, want to keep uh, Eisenhower uh, alive politically for our purposes, somebody's got to answer his mail. Would you like to answer his mail? I said, sure, why not? And uh, we didn't know anything about the mail. How, how do we even set up a contract? So we sat down with, and uh, designed a contract in which I got a certain number of cents for every letter. What we didn't know, that, the, that there was a deluge. Everybody wanted to write to Dwight Eisenhower. He was uh, our biggest hero, a five-star general, two-time president. People wanted uh, his autograph. People wanted to just say hello. People wanted something to, for their charity auctions and so forth. And every time one came in, I got 25 cents. Uh, and before you know it, I had a lot of money. Uh, and it was this money, ultimately, uh, that allowed me to write uh, America's Political Dynasties. Steve Hess is the author of America's Political Dynasties, From Adams to Clinton, available on our website. And now back to Russ Wheeler. Russ, I've read that there is already a shift uh, in court jurisprudence and outcomes uh, because some litigants are choosing not to even take their cases took the judiciary at all. Uh, I've read that too. The one, the, the example that comes to mind is Dow Chemical, which uh, was uh, was thinking of seeking Supreme Court review of a, of a class action decision. That's a pretty contra- controversial matter. And uh, without Scalia there, the chances are fairly good that they might lose the case. Uh, I wouldn't say a change in jurisprudence yet, but I think we see a certain change in tone. Some people have wondered whether Chief Justice Roberts refused to stay in Obama uh, administration environmental regulation, didn't even refer it to the whole court, while the while the court, at least five justices, had agreed rather unprecedentedly to stay another environmental regulation. So some people look at that and read the tea leaves and say Roberts realized he wouldn't have the votes to do that. That is, though, as I say, some surmise. So I wouldn't put too much stock in that. But obviously, I think at the very least, litigants might be waiting to see who the fifth vote is before they proceed. And if it's a if it's a liberal justice appointed by Obama or a Democratic successor, uh, they might change their litigation strategy on some areas. Speaking of tone, uh, I want to ask you this. We don't necessarily know that there's any causal connection between the death of Justice Scalia and these two scenarios I'm going to uh, uh, pose for you. On uh, February 29th, Leap Day, Justice Thomas uh, spoke in court for the first time in something like 10 years. Um, and also, there was a lot of reporting about in the uh, arguments on the Texas abortion facility regulation case that Justices uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Ginsburg 
had the floor basically for a long time and Justice Roberts just kind of let them um, talk. Are those two things related maybe to the absence of Justice Scalia? Is that a shift in tone or is that ju- those just sort of happened and it doesn't matter? I think we, we have to have more examples before we say there's a basic shift in tone. I saw the article that su- suggested Justice Thomas was filling in for his ideological soulmate who, of course, peppered the lawyers with questions all the time. Well, if that keeps up, then we may be able to draw one conclusion. But if we don't hear from Justice Thomas again, then that appears perhaps to be a flash in the pan. That was on a gun case. And he's very he, – he, Thomas and Scalia are very committed to the notion that lower courts who are not applying the Heller decision concerning individual right to firearm vigorously enough. So I don't know if I'd read too much into those things yet. Let's wait to the end of the term. Let's go uh, expand our scope to the the broader federal judiciary that you've uh, studied for quite a long time. Just first of all, on President Obama's track record, have have his nominees been given hearings and and have they been confirmed or not at the same pace as previous presidents? No, but it didn't start with Obama. Let me give you a little data point to put a lot of this in perspective. Uh, During the administrations of Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, two of the most tumultuous in recent memory— both of them got driven from office. Their confirmation rates for lower court judges were around 95%, and they were getting confirmed in about 25 days. You look at what's going on now, and there's, we live in a different world. The confirmation rate for Obama right now stand, doesn't look too bad in, compared to his predecessors. I won't get into all the details, but the confirmation rate for Court of Appeals judges have been going down since Reagan. 88% of Reagan's Court of Appeals nominees were confirmed. In Obama's first five years, 71% were confirmed. Then the Senate went on this tear in 2014 and just started confirming an awful lot of judges, realizing that the Republicans would take over the Senate. So that, that upped his confirmation rate, not only for Court of Appeals, but for district judges. By the end of his term, though, I think those numbers are going to come down. And we can say that the, the, the decline in confirmation rates that we've been seeing since Reagan, perhaps even before, is going to continue. It's also been suggested that President Obama was kind of slow in his first couple of years in office when, when the Senate was controlled by the Democratic Party. He was kind of slow in putting forth nominees. That's right. He was. He was. But they got their act together. And uh, as I say, they, they're doing pretty well now. But the Senate, this isn't a partisan statement. It's just a fact. The Senate is com- confirming many fewer judges in Obama's seventh and his eighth year than Opposition party-controlled Senates did under Bush, under Clinton, and under Reagan. Eight-year presidencies, the last two years of which were under the uh, Senate, was under the other control. We can get into the numbers if you want, but it has been a real slowdown since the Republicans took over the Senate and the Judiciary Committee. A big topic in political science is the relative balance of power between the legislative branch and the executive branch. We're always hearing about presidential powers or, you know, Congress used to be more powerful a century ago and so on. But what about the judicial branch? How does that uh, stack up these days in terms of uh, the attention it gets, the r- relative power it has relative to the other branches of government all throughout the system? You know, that's, uh, that's a question that you can answer seven or eight different ways depending on which historical period you want to pick. Go back to the 1930s when the Supreme Court was invalidating almost all the New Deal legislation and you say the court was a very prominent player, uh, whether or not it's, uh, 
its activities in the 2016, 2015 rank along with that, I think it's, it's, it's hard to say. It's obviously the judiciary is bigger than it used to be. The country's bigger than it used to be. Uh, and, this, and the judiciary, the judiciary is getting into areas that no one thought it had any business getting involved in 50 years ago, gender equality, for example, school prayer. So the political landscape has changed and the court changes along with it. I don't think you can say much more than that, actually. So, if you will, let's project to uh, a year from now. If a Republican candidate wins the White House and the Republicans control the Senate, we'll have a certain um, outcome for the Supreme Court, assuming that President Obama doesn't uh, get a chance to replace Justice Scalia. However, if uh, the Democratic candidate wins and the Republican uh, caucus still controls the Senate, we'll have a different outcome. Do you think in this latter scenario, Democratic president, Republican Senate, like we have today, that after the election next year, after the inauguration, the Senate will hear the uh, the president's uh, nominee, give give that person hearings, and will you know fill the vacancy. It will be on very shaky ground if it doesn't. But there is a school of thought that says this Supreme Court is just too important to allow uh, what the conservatives would call a liberal justice on it. I think this 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 business about whether Obama gets to gets to nominate somebody that the Senate will consider is going to leave a, a really bad taste in, in a lot of people's mouths. And there's enough bad taste in people's mouths already. So I would look for a uh, a, a knockdown, drag-out battle. And if a Republican makes a nomination, I think the Democrats will say, well, it's payback time. You held that seat open and Obama should have been able to fill it and they'll start, cite the historical precedents and who knows what's going to happen. This is this this polarization in our politics has affected the polarization of the confirmation, the nomination and confirmation process. And I don't see how it gets ratcheted down. It can it gets ratcheted up, but I don't see what happens to get us back to the day in which the Senate basically fulfilled its duty, which was to advise and consent to the confirmation of qualified nominees. I mean, we're moving away from that basic obligation the Senate has, it seems to me. So uh, if, if you could advise um, the next president, um, even the current president, but probably the next president, in the type of nominee for the Supreme Court, what kind of qualifications would you suggest the person have? Well, they're the ones everybody talks about. You want someone who has proper judicial temperament, uh, has a respect for precedent, um, does not believe strongly in a, in a highly activist judiciary in the mold of, say, William Douglas. Uh, but on the other hand, as Obama says, realizes that when the law and the facts are not clear, you have to call on notions of public policy about how to decide cases, and that happens at the Supreme Court all the time. So you want somebody who's level-headed and has some sense of the world around them and uh, good public policy. Because the cases get to, that get to the Supreme Court are not all cases, but a lot of them. They're, they're cases in which the precedents and the statute and the Constitution are at best ambiguous. So they have to call on other, you know, other reserves about how to decide cases, and you see that in the number of five, five, four splits. There's a lot of nine to nothing decisions on the Supreme Court, a lot more than people realize. But those five, four splits, which are now, as you said at the outset, they're really almost on party lines, indicate that, as Chief Justice Roberts said, there's more to this than just being an umpire and calling the balls and strikes. Well, Russ, should the uh, should the president uh, make a nomination? Should the Senate have hearings or not have hearings? Should the the landscape that we're seeing change significantly? Can I have you back on the program to give us an update? I'd be happy to. Terrific. Well, thank you for coming on today, Russ. It's been a pleasure. 
Before we go, here's my colleague Bill Finan from the Brookings Institution Press speaking with author Lincoln Mitchell about his new book, The Democracy Promotion Paradox. I want to begin by asking a, a central question. Your book, um, The Democracy Promotion Paradox, uh, what is exactly democracy promotion? Well, in the book, I define democracy promotion both kind of broadly and kind of narrowly, right? So on the one hand, the most narrow democracy promotion uh, can be a battery of activities mostly funded by the USAID aimed at very technical work, ensuring that elections, monitoring elections to see if they're observed fairly, helping to develop the capacity of a legislature in a democratized country, um, helping political party development. But it also... And, and if we limit it to that, it's a very kind of modest and benign set of programs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> One of the paradoxes is that if you can't just limit it to that. Democracy promotion is also something that really is part in very broad strokes of American foreign policy. We see this in national strategy documents. We see this in the statements of secretaries of state and presidents and elected officials. And we see it in as a often post facto, but not always, explanation of major foreign policy decisions. The obvious example for everyone is the Iraq war in 2003, where after we had gone to the war, um, President Bush kind of tried to backdoor this as we did this uh, for democracy in Iraq. Now, that obviously wasn't true, and I don't think Bush meant that when the war started. But, you know, that demonstrates that it's both very big and very small. It it includes a lot of things, but in a narrower way, it includes very few things. And that's one of the challenges and also one of the paradoxes of democracy promotion. So what exactly is the paradox, then, that we're, we're talking here about? You, you mentioned one early on. Well, I might rephrase that question if I can and sure. say what exactly are the paradoxes, because in the book I've really talked about different paradoxes. Mm-hmm. So there are some kind of very big-picture paradoxes and some you know, smaller, uh, more, more specific paradoxes. So, so examples uh, of the former are a democracy promotion paradox is that in 2015 or 2010, and likely will still be the case in 2020, the countries, the remaining countries that are not democratic, are not democratic for the unfortunate reason that their leaders don't want to be democratic, right? And, and which I think intuitively makes sense if you look around the world. But implicit in the notion of democracy promotion, particularly at the programmatic level, is that we want to work with government. And the reason for that is if you're not working with government, you create a whole lot of other problems because you are working against government. So how do you work with a government of a non-democratic state that is committed to staying non-democratic for the, you know, often, often frequently because of the personal motivations of the people in power? How do you work in that setting to create more democracy, right? So that's one paradox. Another paradox is that democracy promotion is something that only exists as a, as a result of American power, right? Why do we promote democracy? I mean, in the book, I kind of conclude after a lot of discussion that we, can, we, we promote democracy because we can't help it. And that may sound a little, a little trite, but there's some truth to that. We promote democracy because we're the most powerful country in the world, and especially when you include our allies who often work with us on this project, and that's, and that's what powerful countries do. On the other hand, democracy, promote, democracy is an ideal that is really – is a political philosophy that really says, well, everyone should make their own decisions. and. It shouldn't, be, it, it shouldn't be the result of political power. So that's, that's a paradox. And where you see this is in this spate of a constant, you know, if you just do a Google search on democracy promotion, barrel of a gun, I think I do this at one point in the book, there's always this constant ar- article, articles. You know, democracy can't be promoted at the barrel of a gun. Democracy can't be enforced from above. And the reason for that is there's something that the same good liberal instincts that say 
people should have a right to live in democratic systems also tell you it's not really right to impose it on them. Of course, many people in the democracy promotion field will say we're not imposing, we're nurturing, facilitating. But, but in my view, that's a very gray area. Of course, one of the paradoxes is that it resonates with our good instincts, our better instincts to say it can't be imposed from above, it can't be um, done at the barrel of a gun. But I used to teach a class at, on democracy promotion at Columbia. And on the last day of the class, I would say, and as we know, democracy cannot be implemented at the barrel of a gun. And the proof of that is that Germany and Japan are still fascist countries. And, and the students would go out halfway through nodding their head, and they'd look at me, realizing that I'd said something that didn't make any sense. So as, as nice as it is to say that, in fact, democracy has been promoted at the barrel of a gun. Not right. saying that should be our policy, but that's a paradox. What, in general, is your assessment of the Obama administration's democracy promotion efforts? I think if we look at post-Cold War democracy promotion, you know, beginning with Clinton, President Clinton, and going through President Bush, uh, and now the Obama administration, the I think the first cut at explaining this is always, you know, a narrative of, of change. You know, we had this kind of neocon moment and the freedom agenda under President Bush, and then this pullback under President Obama. But in my view, a more, a more useful, although frankly not as exciting way to look at it is one of continuity, right? Budgets have changed, not as dramatically as possible, as, as many think, right? The programs are alarmingly similar. I mean, I still do enough democracy work, and I still talk to enough people in the field that when I go to countries, I'm amazed that some of these programs, if you update it because, you know, the Internet didn't quite wasn't quite what it was 15 years ago, what it is today 15 years ago. These are really very programmatically very similar, right? What's changed mostly is the rhetorical emphasis, right? If you go back and look at many of the speeches Bush has made over the years, there's this constant aim of, you know, freedom is essentially something God gave to the Americans, and the Americans are going to give it to the rest of the world, whether they like it or not. But programmatically, outside of Afghanistan and Iraq, it's not that dramatically different. Uh, today than it was. I mean, in other words, Bush's democracy promotion work was not that dramatically different than Clinton's, other than those two countries. Admittedly, that may be a little bit like saying, other than that, this is Lincoln, how was the show? But just bear with me. And then when Obama came in, the, the rhetoric disappeared. You, it's very hard to find a speech where Obama really goes all out and saying, you know, we will bring democracy to the rest of the world. This is our mission. But the programs and the funding didn't change as dramatically as many things. So you know, and, and for me, that very importantly reflects, and this is also one of the paradoxes, that there is a, among the foreign policy establishment, there is a broad consensus around the value and necessity and kind of the need to keep doing democracy promotion work. But among the American people, you know, when I, I mean, I don't, when I talk to, I don't know if you tell, talk to people this because, you know, I don't know how important, but, but when, when, when I tell people what I do, they shrug their shoulders and laugh, right? Or, or they say, well, why don't we try doing that here? all of which are, are legitimate points. So there is this gap between the foreign policy establishment and the rest of the American people. And moving forward, the best, in my sense, the best indicator for how much a president will be committed to ongoing democracy promotion work, you know, as we get ready to elect a new president, is how much is that president a product with regards to foreign policy of the foreign policy establishment? And you can look at the remaining candidates and kind of slot them in as you think fit, given that criteria. You can listen to the extended interview with Lincoln Mitchell about his new book on the book's webpage at brookings.edu. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalah, and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. 
You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.